Dracula. I am Dracula. And I bid you welcome, Mr. Hart, to my heart. Come Our first award goes to the vampires for most blood drained in a single evening. The strength of the vampire is that people will not believe in him. vampire lovers the sun is going down and you know what that means it's time for me to record another episode of my podcast the beautiful dead as always i'm your host lena nazari go to lenanazari.com and join my fanged family to get emails from me that are updates on the books uh, episodes of the podcast that are upcoming. You get to know about appearances before anybody else, and you will get to see the cover of the new book before anyone else. Speaking of appearances, I will be next weekend, uh, September 29th through October 1st in Arlington, Virginia for Creation DC. It's going to be a full moon and it's going to be welcoming October and spooky season. So it's going to be amazing fun. I always have a great time at these cons. So I'm very excited. If you're going to be in the area, come check it out. If you need help getting into the spooky mood, go to Spotify and find my playlist, Music of the Vampires. Uh, If you missed the episode two weeks ago, we did cover a bunch of songs from that podcast. I mean, from that playlist, but there's many, many more to listen to, and I am loving this playlist. And please add whatever you want to to it. I I, I love when I see new songs get put on the playlists. Okay, we're going to get right into it. This is our last episode of September, uh, and then we'll be headed into October to do the Vampire Iceberg, which I'm very excited about. But today... I am really excited because we are talking about my favorite topic, vampires, and my favorite city, New Orleans. So for those of you who have not been to New Orleans, you're in for a little history lesson, a little bit of lore, and hopefully it will encourage you to go check this city out. Walking the streets of New Orleans is like stepping into a different world, a world that's completely separate from ours. It's steeped in culture, it is drenched in music, and it is covered in blood. There are tales of murder, voodoo, hauntings, so much so that when there are things for sale in the French Quarter, the real estate signs will say haunted or not haunted. And amongst tourists and locals alike, both in the shadows and out of the coffin, vampires walk amongst people. The vampires are nowhere near being recent or a new topic in this area. They have been whispered about since the city was claimed for France in 1718. So let's go back in time a little bit. We're going to go back to the beginning. 
In the earliest days of New Orleans, the mayor asked the government of France to please send girls to marry the men that were in New Orleans in the New World um, so that they could have wives and that they could procreate, they could fill the city. So the king obliged and he started sending ships full of women. But these women were from orphanages, prisons, poor houses, not exactly what the mayor was hoping for. Okay. So he did explain a little more of what he wanted. Unfortunately, by that point in time, the residents of New Orleans did not look very fairly on these women coming over. They, they weren't uh, very well respected, if that's a nice way to say it. But in 1728, the king responded by sending a ship full of more acceptable young women who arrived in the French Quarter. After six months on the sea, these girls reached their destination, hoping for a new life full of opportunity in the new world, and each girl had a casket-like wooden trunk that held all of their belongings, all of their earthly belongings. We're talking like just a tiny little trunk clutched to their chests and they were very click quickly called by the locals, the casket girls, because of these trunks that they held close to them. They had been chosen based on age and background to marry the French colonists that were in this new city. And, um, the residents, like I said, weren't necessarily kind to these young women. <clears throat> they were not seen with respect. The girls very quickly did everybody notice that the girls were very pale, so much so that their skin would start to discolor and blister very quickly under the Louisiana sun. They were kind of shuffled away and taken to the home where they would live until they found a proper marriage. Now, some of the girls found marriages were forced into marriages pretty quickly, not treated so kindly by their new husbands. Other girls were not so lucky. I guess lucky is not really the right word, but not, not all of the girls were married right away. Some actually ended up turning to prostitution to make ends meet. Um, there was some complaints about these young ladies, and so eventually they would fall under the care of some nuns, and they would live in the Ursuline convent. Now, previously, the third floor of this convent was unused, so this is where the girls were sent. So they had beds, and at the end of the beds were their caskets, their, their little wooden trunks that had all of their things. Um, <clears throat> legend has it that the nuns very quickly shuttered the windows of the third floor to protect the girls' virtues, and then their hand mirrors were taken away to protect them from the sin of vanity. But not long after this, crops failed, neighbors fell ill, and people did what they always do, and they blamed the girls. So whispers very quickly began that these pale, quiet women must be vampires that they had brought evil with them. Um, and it's reported that the nuns then threw the girls out and sealed off the third floor. But years later, and I'm going to quote an article by Michael DeMocker, <clears throat> a guy repairing the leaky roof found the empty caskets and it all began to make sense in an insane 18th century sort of way. 
the casket girls had smuggled in vampires from Eastern Europe, vampires who were now leaving blood-drained corpses all over Greater New Orleans metro area. Many believed the flying vampires wanted to return to their caskets in the convent's third floor, which is why the windows were permanently sealed with 800 screws made of silver that had been blessed in Rome by the Pope himself. It turns out the windows were sealed not to keep them, keep their virtue intact, but to keep the evil out. Allegedly, Pope John Paul II even re-blessed the anti-vampire screws during his 1987 visit. If you look up to the third floor today, you can see that the windows are still shuttered. A 1934 photo of the original stairway where ghost hunters say the apparitions of the original Ursuline nuns can be detected, and I will show the photo. So if you're just listening to the podcast, you need to run over to YouTube and see the photo. But all of these precautions were for naught. For the vampires and their stories were in New Orleans for good, as anyone who has ever Googled New Orleans and vampires can tell you. One story holds that in the 1970s, a couple of ghost hunters ditched a tour of the convent and hid out in the courtyard with the intention of spending the night monitoring the sealed third floor windows for vampiric shenanigans. Alas, their corpses drained of blood were discovered the following morning. That's story number one. But this is far from the only vampire legend in the French Quarter. So come back in time with me, not as far back as the beginning of New Orleans, but come back with me to mid 17th century France. Now follow along with me, okay? We're not in New Orleans right now, we're back in France. The Comte Saint-Germain was a disgustingly wealthy aristocrat. Little is known about his birthplace or history, and trust me, I looked, <laughs> except that he was born in 1917, apparently, although I saw a couple other dates out there as well. He arrived in the French court in 1748 with wild claims, such as claiming he was the son of a Transylvanian prince and that he was 500 years old. None of these claims, however, have been proven. However, a, later, a letter from five years prior to this, his arrival in France, places him in London being arrested as a suspected Jacobite spy. So this man gets around. The source of his immense wealth has never been determined. So where the money came from, who knows? There's no proof that he was a Transylvanian prince's son. Nobody knows where this money came from. However, it was an extreme amount of wealth. Reportedly, he walked around with gems on his garments, just hanging out on his garments, through these lavish parties, was an accomplished musician and composer, spoke many languages, had great political influences, and was said to be very quick-witted and very intelligent. There are many tales about this man, one being that he held the confidence of Marie Antoinette and that he was actually able to predict things. And one of the things he supposedly predicted and told Marie Antoinette about was the French Revolution. And reportedly, he told her about this many years before it happened. The philosopher Voltaire called him the man who knows everything and never dies. However, his death was recorded in 1784. 
That being said, there were no witnesses of this said death and reports of sightings of this man occurred many, many years past his date. So was he fleeing the French Revolution? Did he fake his death? I don't know. Now, fast forward more than a century. It's 1902 and a man named Jacques Saint-Germain moved from France to New Orleans. It would not take very long for rumors to start. I think we've established New Orleans. One of the things they do well is rumors. And they started saying things about this enigmatic aristocrat who was claiming to be a descendant of the Comte Saint-Germain who we just talked about. Jacques' lavish parties included the New Orleans aristocracy, flowed with drink and food and much um, debauchery. Now that being said, he never ate. Everybody says that he would just sip on his wine while everybody else ate. And this apparently offended uh, the aristocracy of New Orleans. Why it offended them, I don't know. It was his party, it was his food, he was choosing not to eat it, but apparently they were offended. Um, and they all whispered about him. And Jacques, while very being immensely rich, never really seemed to fit in because of this, whether it's because he didn't eat or who knows what. Apparently they had no problem coming to his parties and eating all his food and enjoying all his money, but he never really fit in. They kind of whispered about him behind his back. He was described as charming, highly intelligent, a master of languages and art and music, but the company he kept and the fact that he was known to party a lot, he especially loved Bourbon Street, kept him from being completely accepted by the elitists. Now, by all accounts, Jacques was quite the ladies' man. And each night he would go out into the French Quarter and he would find a lady for the evening, or he would have a lady on his arm at his parties. And apparently one night, he finds a young lady, brings him back, brings her back to his apartment. And then people in the French Quarter hear screaming and she has jumped from his second floor balcony. If you've been to New Orleans, you'll know that a lot of these homes in the French Quarters have these balconies. She jumped and was screaming and people ran up to her and she claimed that Jacques had attacked her and bitten her neck. She was taken to the hospital. She would later succumb to the wounds. So the cops decide the next morning, because you know we don't want to bother a rich man at night, the next morning they go to search his home. They found no Jacques, shocker, and they found all of these bottles of wine. One of the cops takes a swig and it is not wine, it is blood. He was drinking wine mixed with blood throughout all of these parties in front of everybody. They never did find him. Um, they, of course, believe that he was not a descendant of the Count, but was in fact the Count himself, that he was a vampire who changed identities as needed to cover up his immortality, disappearing from the French court, possibly to avoid the revolution, lying low for a century, doing who knows what. You know, if he had been a Jacobite spy, perhaps he had connections in Scotland and he's off hiding in the Highlands somewhere. And then he reemerges in New Orleans using the same last name, claiming to be a descendant, which would explain the extreme wealth, and gets himself into a little bit of trouble. What do you guys think? What do you think? 
look up pictures. I posted a picture of the Count. Um, I was unable to find a picture of Jacques, but it'd be interesting. And um, I was reading in a lot of the research that many people said there are portraits of the Comte uh, Saint Germain from different years where he's always looking around 40. So that was interesting. That made me think of Marius from um, the Vampire Chronicles. All right, so let's go ahead and jump ahead. I wanna go to some more recent discussions or recent tales, recent uh, vampiric activity in the French Quarter because that's what you guys wanna hear about, right? Not the old stuff. We know like they were a tad bit superstitious back in the day. There was a lot of rumors, a lot of whispers. So let's jump ahead, okay? First, though, I have to teach you about just a tiny bit about the burial practices in New Orleans. And I promise there's a reason why we're doing this. Now, I would like to quote an article by Matthew Dwayne Bartels because I want to do this justice. Uh, when I was in New Orleans recently, I did go on a lovely tour and it was the whole thing was described to me by a local which it was extremely interesting, but I'm going to read this verbatim from the article so that I, I explain to you guys and hopefully you understand what I'm trying to say. And then we'll talk about our next set of vampires. Most of the tombs seen around New Orleans are owned by individual families and can hold a vast amount of people. How it does this is because these tombs operate like a slow burning furnace. So you have to think about the heat of Louisiana. You got to think about what these tombs are made out of. A body is placed on top inside the tomb on like a shelf. Okay. And I'm going to post a picture so you guys can see, I want to find the same picture they showed us on the tour because it really is the best way to see it, but I'm going to post it on YouTube as I'm describing this. <clears throat> the body is placed on top of a shelf in the tomb for one year and a day to properly execute the cycle from ashes to ashes and dust to dust. We all know this, right, from the Judeo-Christian doctrine. After this period, the body is either pushed to the back of the tomb or removed and placed in the bottom section. Due to the high humidity and heat of the area, the bodies are slowly cremated over the course of 50 to 60 years. So multiple generations can be held in each individual tomb, sometimes totaling up to 60 people or more. Bodies are even inside the walls of the cemeteries in New Orleans. As space became more limited, it became a cheaper and space-efficient space way to prepare corpses from floating away. Often these types of tombs were used during the heaviest years from things like um, yellow fever epidemics, also used as like rental tombs. So if two family members died within the same traditional year in a day, then you could could um, take the second one and sort of rent a wall vault to have your person put in for a year and a day. Then they would be taken back out and then they would be put into the uh, lower vault of the family tomb so that everybody can be brought back together. Many of these wall vaults were reused by families and can sometimes hold up to 10 people each inside of them. So the body's put in it's left there for a year and a day. Then you go back, you open it up. There's just bones basically. And you kind of push the bones back and they fall into the bottom pit to be with their kin or their relatives. And then you have another space for the next person in the family who passes away. And 
this is common burial practice down in New Orleans. It's very efficient. I'm sure some of, some of you are probably cringing right now, um, but I understand it efficiency-wise, and also it depends on what you think after death, right? But if it's they're just bones, then they're just bones, and so they're pushed to the back, and then they get to join their family down in the family pile at the bottom. So now that you know that, let's travel to the French Quarter. And it is 1932 now. So this is less than 100 years ago. A terrified 11-year-old girl is found running, obviously very upset, down Royal Street. And a police officer stops her. Her story would be the beginning of a real-life horror movie in the French Quarter. I don't mean to laugh. She led the officer to a home on the corner of Royal and St. Anne where four other people would be found tied up and a few pints short of the blood that they should have had in their bodies. Their captors were Wayne and John Carter, two brothers who were local dock workers who arrived in the city during the Depression. According to the victims, the brothers left when the dawn started to rise and returned each day after dark to unwrap the captives' wrists, open up the wounds, fill cups with their blood, drink the blood right in front of the victims, and then redress the slices and leave with very few words spoken. So the cops send the victims to the hospital, I believe one succumbed to his injuries, and they just sit there and wait for the brothers to return. So that night after the sun goes down, the brothers show up for their nightly drink and find police officers instead of victims. According to the brothers, if they were not arrested and locked up, they would kill again as they were vampires and needed the blood to survive. They were very quickly sentenced to death. And then a year later, when the tomb was opened to retrieve their coffins, the bodies were gone. Locals immediately started to whisper that the brothers were actual vampires and that they moved on to a different city to continue feeding, having learned from their sloppy work in New Orleans to be better killers and better vampires. So what do you guys think? What do you think about John and Wayne Carter? Interesting, right? All right. If you're watching on YouTube, you will notice that there was a very clear edit. And that's because Miss Juliet was at the top of the stairs scratching and crying because she can't just be away from me for 30 minutes. So she is now laying at my feet. So we can move on. Can we move on, Juliet? Are you good? Okay. All right. We cannot talk about New Orleans and vampires without talking about Miss Anne Rice. We have to talk about her. Anne Rice was born in New Orleans in 1941. So not long after the uh, Carter brothers that we just talked about. Aptly, she was born in the month of October. She is a Libra like yours truly. She was raised in a home on St. Charles Street, and at 17, she did move to Texas, where she finished high school, and then she would do two years of college, but then have to drop out because of money, and having trouble finding work, she ended up in San Francisco. San Francisco is where she would meet her husband, and she would eventually go back to school, and she would earn a bachelor's and then a master's. In 1972, 
unfortunately, and we do have to mention this, she lost her six-year-old daughter to leukemia. Now, she had another son, Christopher, she had Christopher, a son, but she lost her daughter to leukemia, which is extremely sad. And a year later, while still grieving and processing the loss of her daughter to this blood issue, this blood poison, she would take a short story that she had previously written and turn it into her first novel, titling it Interview with the Vampire. Her beloved New Orleans is heavily featured in the novel. She admits she did not do a lot of research on vampires. She based her vampires on a character from Dracula's Daughters. Um, to her, vampires were elegant and tragic and beautiful, and that's how she wrote her vampires. I think we can all agree that her novels, especially the first one, changed vampire culture forever she changed the face of vampires she changed the way they were talked about the way that they were looked at in 1985 she published the vampire Lestat, which was the second book in june 1988 she returned to her beloved new orleans the same year queen of the dam was uh, published and it, this book, Queen of the Damned, the third one of the Vampire Chronicles, would sit on the New York Times bestseller list for four months. She told people the joy that she felt having returned to New Orleans is actually what inspired her to journey into witchcraft and her substantial novel, uh, The Witching Hour. So for anybody who has read the, the Witching Hour, you will know what I mean. It is a substantial novel. Her vampire novels, which are now collectively called the Vampire Chronicles, like we said, would eventually have 10 books, with the last one being published in 2018. After the loss of her husband and her son grew up and he moved away and she was alone, she decided that she would leave New Orleans. Um, and she left, I want to say in 2005, right before Hurricane Katrina. It was either 2004 or 2005. So she left right before Hurricane Katrina. Um, she eventually did end up back in California. And that is where she passed away at the age of 80 years old. And while she left the world in California, she was eventually buried in Metairie Cemetery in New Orleans with her husband and her daughter. Rice's vampires have influenced an innumerable, innumerable amount of literary, cinematic, television, musical, and art pieces. The vampire community is what it is today because of Anne Rice. She has a big part to play in that. And I couldn't imagine her novels being set anywhere else but New Orleans. For those of you who have never been, it is a city full of history and magic. At the same time, there's there's this very solid history with this like air of magic all around you all the time. It is uh, ghosts and gaslights and you can ask a hoodoo man to make you a protection bag while sipping on a hurricane and talking to a visitor from way across in Europe. I mean, it is such an amazing place. It is so 
different from anywhere else in the world. Today, you can find vampire-friendly restaurants like the Vampire Cafe and the Vampire Apothecary. There's undead shopping locales like the Boutique du Vampire and Vampire Tours. When you visit the French Quarter, there is one thing you need to know, which is that there are real-life vampires in that city existing safely, without judgment, amongst cobblestone streets and party-goers from all over the globe. And no, they do not bite unless you ask. <laughs> if you're thinking of traveling, I will be there in January 2024. I'd love to share a drink with you. But until then, I hope you've enjoyed this little talk about New Orleans and vampires. If I've missed a particular tale, if there's something you would like to add, please feel free to comment down below. Um, until then, I hope you will join me next week for October and the first installment of the Vampire Iceberg. If you don't know what a Vampire Iceberg is, well, then you need to come back next week and see what it is. Um, of course, I, I wish you wicked hugs and bloody kisses. Go listen to some spooky music, go have some spooky drinks, go do some spooky things, and then write and tell me all about it because I am loving this. And I hope you guys are having a safe but fun autumn season. It is now officially autumn. When this podcast drops, it will officially be autumn. So go do your spooky stuff, people. Good evening. <laughs>